Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.45, Questions and Answers. Welcome to our right around 100th episode Q&A. To kick this off today, I want to mention the format that we are going to be using. Now, generally, I run this podcast with scripts and carefully edit to make everything sound as good as I possibly can. This week, though, I'm not going to do that. In the spirit of a Q&A episode, I'm going to be less formal on this episode. This means that I'm not scripting this out and that I'm just working from some notes. I'm also not really going to do much in the way of editing here, so if this sounds a bit different from normal, that's why. I got a good response from this, so thank you very much, and have picked out a handful of questions to answer. In a few cases, I actually took multiple similar questions and then just kind of edited them into a single overarching question. Okay, well, with that, let's go ahead and jump on in. Our first question that we're going to jump into is one that I actually got asked twice. So this is going to be an amalgamation of those two questions. The question is, why didn't the French have a system like the British during the French and Indian War to help encourage the colonists to join the fight? So this is a good question, and I want to go through and discuss why the French never had a subsidy system like we see from William Pitt. The subsidy system for the British proved to be very powerful. When we were looking back at Braddock and Loudoun, there had been that air of indifference from the colonies. They dragged their feet, and even when given direct orders, it was more of a, yeah, we'll get around to it when we get around to it kind of approach. When Pitt came in and started offering these massive subsidies, It pumped a lot of cash into the economy, and it got the interest of the colonial legislatures. It pushed them into action and got them to finally start raising their troop numbers and actually making a meaningful contribution to the war. Something that we saw was very much lacking with Braddock and Loudon. The question is here, why didn't Versailles offer something to the French like that in Canada? Something to push them into the war effort. Now. I think that the answer to this is that it really wouldn't have mattered. The British colonies and the French colony in Canada were two very, very different things. The British colonies were several colonies. There's not one colony. You've got the Carolinas, Georgia, Virginia, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, all of them. Whereas in French North America, you had Canada. Now, there are other French holdings, but for what we're talking about today, you had Canada. You had a single governor, that was Vaudreuil, and that was basically it. So what you really don't see with Canada is that need to get anybody acting because, well, you had a colonial governor, and for the most part, the Canadians were doing the thing. The bigger problem, though, for Canada is one that just works down to pure pragmatism. Pitt's plan worked in North America because the colonies had the numbers to make it work. Canada had a total population of right around 80,000, with about 15,000 of those being in any kind of shape to fight. In our episode when we talk about the surrender of Canada, you had three armies made up of around 20,000 men moving on Montreal for the British. 
That's not even all-inclusive of all British troops either. That's just those that moved to Montreal, which admittedly is a good number, but it's not everybody. It is also important here to keep in mind that I had mentioned that there were some 80,000 colonists in French Canada, with some 15,000 in any shape to fight. Well, in the British colonies, you had a total population that was now in excess of 1 million. So it is just on a completely different scope than what the French have in Canada. The other thing in Canada is that 15,000 that I just mentioned, well, that's just pretty much anybody who has got the ability to hold and fire a musket. So we're not talking the cream of the crop soldiers here. Though, to be fair, in my numbers here, I am including the provincials for the British, so uh, be that what it may. Pragmatically, the French were just lacking the numbers that the British had. The British just always had that population advantage that they could utilize. Canada, despite the fact that it was a single entity nominally under the control of Vaudreuil, though I, I think there is something to be said here too for the infighting between him and Montcalm, was just a different beast entirely from the British North American colonies and how it operated and what the expectations were. For the British, the infighting was largely the Crown and the Crown's generals, Braddock, Loudon, clashing with the colonial legislatures. That doesn't really happen in Canada. The clashes are not between those being sent over from France into Canada to give orders. Rather, those clashes are coming to the very top. It was Vaudreuil and Montcalm who were fighting and ultimately needed Versailles to step in and give some clarification. So this is all to say that had France decided to start pumping subsidies into Canada, though I'm sure the colonists would have been very appreciative, it really would not have had that much of an effect just because their situation is so much different than what we see to the south in the British colonies. For our second question, I was asked, how were the citizens of the colonies reacting to the battles in general? Did they typically support what the British were doing? Did they typically view the Native Americans as an enemy? Now, I'm going to give a partial answer here, and I want to explain why. I am going to hold off on answering the question about the relationship between the Native Americans and the colonists after the Easton Conference. The reason for that is that you are going to get a very good answer to that question, but you're going to have to wait until the next episode. To start season four, the first three episodes of that season are going to be looking at the relationship between the colonists and the native tribes in the aftermath of Easton. It will go into those questions of how did they view each other? How did they interact? And I don't really think this is going to be a spoiler for anybody, how the Easton Treaty would very, very rapidly collapse. Now, as to the first part of the question. How did the colonists feel about everything that was going on? What level of support did they give? Well, first, I think it's important to know that no matter what, they were always happier winning battles than losing battles. Absolutely nobody enjoys losing. 
Nobody likes their loved ones getting killed in battle, so losses were never going to be popular. This is, of course, also not the first time we have seen the French and the colonists fight each other. There had been nearly 75 years of agitation between the two groups. You've got King William's Wars right after the Glorious Revolution. You've got Queen Anne's War. You've got the War of Austrian Succession. So these groups have been fighting each other for years. This was not the first time that we had seen the British move on, say, Louisburg. And those years of fighting had built up just quite a bit of natural animosity between the two groups. And we're going to actually talk more about this when we get to the American Revolution. But there was a real reluctance for a lot of colonists of going to the French in the first place because they're looking at it and saying, hey, we've been fighting these people for a century now, half a century now. That animosity between the two groups is going to remain something that we are going to see moving on forward. Now, moving back towards the question here, the British colonists absolutely were happy to be hearing about victories. In places like Massachusetts, victories are great. They're the kind of thing that you can pump your fist about, you can feel good about, and you can, you know, go on living your life. In places like Pennsylvania or Virginia, we see the destabilization of the entire frontier during the beginning stages of the French and Indian War after the loss of Braddock's army up near the Monongahela. So when you have that situation, well, now winning and losing is not even a question of morale building. It's a question of if we lose and the frontier destabilizes more, are these tribes going to come in and murder me and my family in our sleep? So there is definitely a sense of patriotism coming from that because they had very real stakes in winning these battles. Now, moving back to places that were in less immediate danger, say Massachusetts. Yes, losing was bad for morale. We've already talked about that. But the thing that I have not mentioned is that once William Pitt came into power, money really did become a pretty big motivator. More than any patriotic zeal, they wanted those subsidies because it was a lot of money and it's money that the colonies desperately wanted. So as far as if there was general support for the British, the answer in this case is yes. There could, of course, be unpopular wars. The Americans did not support what the British did in Queen Anne's War. There was a lot of bitterness by the Americans who felt relatively stood up by the British. Likewise, nobody was a big fan of the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle after the end of the War of Austrian Succession, where the Americans felt like they should have gotten more out of it. In the French and Indian War, however, there was wide-scale support, especially after Pitt came into power. All of those prior grumblings that they may have had were largely taken care of through those generous subsidies that were rolling in through William Pitt. The next question is probably the most unique one I got asked and will probably be the fastest answer that I've got on this episode. The question is, if you were to put all of the colonies into a cage match, which one would emerge victorious? Guys, the answer is Virginia. There's no other answer. It's always Virginia. Now, 
because I'm doing this, I'm going to show my math here. If we've got all the colonies, we're going to see the original 13 going into a cage match with each other. We are going to assume that you can't have alliances. So you're not going to have like the New England colonies all ganging up together. It's going to be just one on one. And if that's the case, Virginia's population is just massive compared to anybody else's. Uh, Massachusetts in 1760s got a population of a little over 200,000. Well, Virginia is tipping the scales at right around 340,000. The only other colony that's even in the same ballpark as, say, Massachusetts is Pennsylvania. And if you're unclear as to why Pennsylvania probably is not going to do very good fighting a cage match during the colonial era, I am going to recommend that you go back and listen to literally every episode that I made on Pennsylvania. And this is to say nothing for the fact that Virginia is going to be led by George Washington, which that's going to be a pretty nice advantage for them. So, yeah, the answer is if you put all of the colonies into a cage match with only one walking out surviving, the winner's going to be Virginia. Our next question was probably the longest single question that I got. There are a lot of parts here, but I am going to boil it down to its bare essentials. The question is, why did the settlers in Jamestown choose to remain in Jamestown? Weren't there better places that they could have gone? This is an excellent question because it is something that we spent a whole lot of time talking about but I never really addressed the reason of why did they end up staying there. So let's go ahead and work our way through this. If you'll recall, when they land in Jamestown, it is a terrible bit of land, and there's good indications right from the very beginning that it was a terrible piece of land. Now, chiefly, when they landed, they're right in the middle of the Powhatan Confederacy. There are tribes pretty much everywhere. It's relatively densely inhabited. And yet, this one little strip of land? Yeah, there's nobody there. Nobody has taken that piece of land that would become Jamestown. And for good reason, because it seems that the Native Americans had also figured out that it was a terrible piece of land. It was filled with brackish water, filled to the brim with mosquitoes and sickness and death, and it really just was not a great place to be. It was in a bad location, the natives around it were hostile, and yeah, not really the place you want to settle down. You really see this throughout the first decade. The death rate being what it was, you have a situation where your odds of surviving in Jamestown are considerably lower than your chances of dying, which that's not ideal, even by 17th century standards. So considering how awful it was, why did they stay? There had to be some great reason. Did they think that there were some great untapped resources there? Was it a highly defensible position? Did they think that Cortez had maybe buried his gold there? Well, no, that's not really it at all. In fact, the actual answer is far more disappointing and frankly kind of boring. It's a mixture of momentum and pragmatism. Now, initially, settling Jamestown was one of pure pragmatism. As we just talked about a second ago, you've got the 107 men getting off the boat in 1607. 
and they're clearly not about to go launch an immediate invasion against the Powhatan Confederacy. So they just took what was available, and Jamestown is what was available. Now, this is their home. They've settled down there, and they're going to pour their resources into securing it. They did their best to work the land. They built a fort. They settled down. During those early years, we're going to say the first decade or so, during the worst of the starvation, they don't move because nobody really had the energy to do so. They were expending a huge amount of energy into just not dying. They didn't want to starve to death. Moving would have required energy. It would have required resources that they just did not have. There really was not a meaningful ability to move during that first decade. Now, we do see right after the starving time, they did make at least some overtures that they were going to leave and go elsewhere. We don't really know how that would have worked out. The reinforcements showed up and cut the leaving project short. Everybody went back to Jamestown and picked right back up. So, at least in the worst of times, moving just was not really in the cards because it required an energy that was not there. They were expending too much at that point, trying not to starve. But of course, that is going to eventually settle down and things are going to start to improve. Well, the truth is, when things are improving, what's the point in moving? Because, hey, Things are improving. Now, then they crash headlong into the massacre of 1622. This is going to even more discourage them from leaving. And recall in 1622, that's where Opashinkano attacked the frontiers. So, very clearly, the frontiers are a very dangerous place. You had a whole lot of colonists along the frontiers who had just been slaughtered. If they had attempted to leave Jamestown at that point, well, that's going to risk exposure, which is going to increase the danger. It made more sense to just stay in Jamestown, which was, at a minimum, a relatively safe option. And increasingly, it was a stable option. By the time that the Powhatan Confederacy had been defeated, Jamestown had been significantly improved. People were spreading out, but Jamestown itself, well, that was relatively safe. There was just no longer any real reason to leave. In fact, they don't end up leaving until the town is completely destroyed when it got burnt down. And not just once, it actually got burnt down twice. It happened the first time during Bacon's Rebellion, and then it happened again a decade and a half or so later. Finally, at that point, people decided that, okay, you know, this is probably a pretty good time to relocate to somewhere a bit more advantageous than Jamestown. So they end up relocating over to Williamsburg. In that situation, the town had burnt twice. They were facing the prospect of having to rebuild it again. And relocating at that point, it made sense because, hey, we're going to have to put the energy in. We're going to have to put the resources in to rebuild. You might as well go somewhere a little bit easier. So in that way, I actually think this answer is a bit on the boring side. It's not the most satisfying. It just boils down to the fact that when they would have wanted to leave, they lacked the energy to do so. And then when things had improved enough, the idea of leaving no longer really made sense until the town burnt down a couple times, which gave them that motivation that, okay, it's time to move on. 
So thank you for that question. Next up, we get the question, where do you find the sources you use and how does that influence the narrative? Now to start out, I'm going to tell you all I had two different versions of this question and this is one of the ones that I decided to merge together. One of the questions was more in general about how I write the episodes and the other one got in more to how the sources I use affect the overall narrative. I am glad I got these questions because it's something that I've actually thought of doing a standalone supplement on. Just something to explain how I build the episodes, what information I'm using. So I'm going to go over a little bit of that right now. First off, I always want to make sure you guys know that I do maintain a bibliography over on the website where you can see exactly what I'm using to write the show. I include a link in the show notes for every episode. You can just look at those and click over to it. My general rule is that even if I use something as a reference, even if I'm not directly citing to it, I do have it listed in there just to make sure that I'm giving proper credit where credit is due. To go into how I write an episode, I will bring up something that I brought up earlier, the fact that all my episodes are scripted and that I do tend to write in series. This is important because it somewhat dictates how I write the narrative up when I know that I'm going to write, say, these five episodes, all using similar sources and having a narrative structure that flows between all five episodes. Moving through how I do the research, I move in a path from general sources down to often very specific sources. So I've got books that I'll use that look out over the entire period, say the French and Indian War. It'll look over the entire French and Indian War. But then I will have books that narrow it in more specifically where I will look at maybe a specific battle. I'll look at Quebec or the battles up at Fort Corralin. And on episodes where I really want to dive deeper, I often will also go out, look for academic articles, journals, and things like that to supplement and really bring in the more fresh new research being done. The question of how I choose my sources, I always do my best to try to ensure that I'm using good sources. Normally, when I'm looking at a book to use, I start by looking at the publisher and the author. If possible, I always prefer to stick with books from academic presses, and I have started to recognize more and more of the authors in the fields. I've got people who I certainly trust. I will go with their books whenever I can. I look at the year that something was published. Now, just because it's older doesn't mean I don't use it. I do use plenty of sources that are fairly old. But generally, the newer the book, the happier I am with it, because I know it's going to be, at least in terms of the historiography, more recent and using more recent research. Now, the question of how does this affect the narrative? Now, that is a fantastic question. Because obviously the books I read are going to dictate the direction of the show's narrative. And I will tell you guys, I read a lot. I read in basically every free moment I've got. 
be it an hour, 30 minutes. Sometimes I will sit down and read two pages in a period of five minutes. I just do what I have to do to get this churned out. And the way I see the books influencing it is a lot of what I use is admittedly biographies. I've got biographies for a whole lot of different people here. I try, and especially as the show goes on, I'm trying harder and harder here to recognize some of the limitations that come with using biographies. I am not necessarily a huge supporter of the big man, giant of history argument, that there are just these handful of players that dictate everything. And in a narrative-based podcast, sometimes you can get caught up in that, especially when biographies are dictating the narrative. As we move into the next season, I do make an effort to bring in additional sources that will try to move through the different class structures and look at how the imperial crisis forms up from those big men of history, your George Washingtons, Ben Franklins, Thomas Jeffersons, but then flows down through the different rungs of society. So in that way, the books that I'm choosing are going to very much dictate how my impressions of the era come out. One of the things also to consider when I am looking through these sources and trying to figure out just what I want to use is the fact that history can become unbelievably micro. And what I mean by that is you can always go a step lower. Sure, you've got the delegates who are going to be off at the Continental Congress, but then you move to state conventions, and then you can go even further down to the local towns, and you can keep going further and further down to smaller and smaller subsets of groups whose decisions really matter in the aggregate on how they're going to affect things. And this is something that, depending on the books you're reading, may not get either fleshed out as fully or is unfortunately stuff that I often have to leave on the proverbial editing room floor. So to tie this back into the original question, when I'm looking at sources, especially now, yes, I am still reliant on those biographies and things about individual people, but I am trying to bring in more books that look more broadly at society through the times that we're talking about and get more into people who are not household names and who are not generally thought of as being influential or frankly not really thought of at all because history does get very micro and I want to be able to bring you guys more and more information on how these things build up, not just at the very top, but down throughout society. Up next, I have a question asking for more information about the interplay between the Dutch and the English. So, of all of the questions that I got, this is the one that ended up taking me the longest to answer, and really required me to go out and do some research. I went back to the books that I had used at the time when we were talking about New Netherland and was surprised to find that there really was not a ton of information about interplay between that colony and the British colonies. 
that discussion would always be, this is what's happening in New Netherland, or this is what's happening in the English colonies, but never really, this is what's happening between the two. The answer, likewise, was not just readily apparent from the research we've already done. So let's work our way through this here. So the first question is, why is New Netherland unique? It is unique because it's really the only time that we see something come into those North American English colonies that make them less than contiguous. There was New Sweden, that was a thing, but it had a very limited effect. However, for the better part of 30 years, there was just a Dutch colony hanging out in the middle of everything. Now, we know that there was going to be trade. It makes sense that the English colonies would trade with the Dutch colonies. Their proximity to each other makes it seem rather unlikely that there wouldn't be trade going back and forth, out of necessity of nothing else. However, the more I thought about it as we move towards the 1650s and 1660s, we are heading into more of a restrictive era of trade as things like the Navigation Acts begin to appear. This tends to lead us towards the direction of, okay, maybe there wasn't that much trade. This leaves me in a place where I've got an argument going both directions. My sources that I used for the episodes were not really helping me, as they really did not talk about the trade between the two. So it took me a while here, but I was finally able to find a research paper by Dr. Kim Tott, a historian at Cornell, who goes into this. Now, I do feel it important to specifically mention her name here, because her work on the subject was easily the most comprehensive answer to the question I could find, and I am leaning on it pretty heavily because it was the only answer to the question I could find. So the answer is, yes, there was trade between the colonies in New Netherland. This was actually a pretty robust trade because New Netherland could import goods that the other colonies couldn't. It gave fresh trade with another nation. Now, if you're sitting there and saying, wait, Alan, what about the Navigation Acts? Well, as it turns out, the colonists were pretty skilled at just ignoring the Navigation Acts, which is exactly what they did. New Netherland was likewise keenly aware of their unique position here. They went out of their way to foster trade with the English colonies. And this included having agents in all of the other colonies to help facilitate trade. Now, before you go out and start thinking that this is some huge trading network, do keep in mind that it is always going to be somewhat limited. The colonies just were not that big. The middle colonies really had not developed yet. And just based on all of that, it was a relatively small trade, all things considered. However, if you look at the trade in the aspect of the size of the colonies, well, it was doing pretty good. So, yes, for a minute there, there was a robust and critical trade in existence between New Netherland and the English colonies. So, thank you for that question. Next, we have the question. Is it too simplistic to say that Jumonville Glen was the birthplace of the United States? Let's start by working through the question. Jumonville Glen is the place that the French and Indian War launched. That is a war that is going to do much to explain the coming imperial crisis. Plus, we certainly cannot ignore that it is where George Washington would step out onto the world stage. Albeit in a less than optimal way. 
This question, however, leads to another question of what exactly does it mean to be the birth of the United States? I think, however, that I would define that as being the moment when independence becomes more likely than not. That point where it would take more energy to avoid the Revolutionary War. That would take more energy to avoid the independence movement than it would take for the war to just go ahead and occur and independence likewise to occur. If that is the metric that we're going with, then Jumonville Glen is probably not it. That point of no return, where it would have been hard to turn back and everybody step back from where they were, probably does not come until the Boston Tea Party, though I would argue there's still some chances where they can back out then, and as we're going to see next season, the idea of independence does not just immediately follow the beginning of the revolution. Lexington and Concord happen in April 1775. The Declaration of Independence does not happen until the summer of 1776. So certainly I think back when we are at Jumonville Glen, there are a million different places where you could have backed away. This is still a very distinctly British war. It is still being commanded by British troops and officers. It is a wholly British affair still. That is, of course, not to say that this was not an important moment. The French and Indian War is huge in our story. It's huge for explaining the coming imperial crisis, which ultimately leads to the revolution. So I think there is an argument here that the events at Jumonville Glen are a domino in that line of events. But where I'm actually going to stutter again here is that I think even if our French emissary Jumonville doesn't go get himself shot in some remote field out in Pennsylvania, the French and Indian War is still going to happen. It is still likely going to play out much in the same way. The death of Jumonville certainly explains what did happen. But by that point, everybody was so ratcheted up and so prepared for those dominoes to fall that it could have been any number of events that did it. So I don't know that I even think here that the death of Jumonville was necessary for the French and Indian War. I think that had Jumonville never been ambushed by Washington and company, something else would have kicked the war off. By the time that this goes down, everybody seemed to be preparing for a war that was more or less inevitable by this point. So I'm going to say no, I don't think Jumonville Glen is the birthplace of the United States. I think that is still way off in our future and is not something we're going to see until the end of the imperial crisis and the outbreak of the revolution itself. Next up, we've got a question on production, which reads, How do you sustain yourself while finding the time to do all the research, record, and edit episodes? Do you have another primary job, and if so, what is it? How much, if any, do you make from these episodes? The question goes on to ask if I have plans to write a book and if I have plans to ever sell merch. Taking this from the top, how do I find time to do all of this? 
the answer is one paragraph at a time. Whenever I have some free time, I am always reading something or writing something. And really, it's not that rare for me to be able to sit down and knock out one paragraph and come back maybe a few hours later for another one. I've gotten used to the work schedule. It takes me about two weeks to write a script. And then recording it takes me about an hour and a half per episode with maybe another three to four hours to edit that episode. So I am pumping out one script every two weeks, and generally I try to get one recording finished up every two weeks as well at this point. As to the portion of the question that asks if this is essentially my day job, it is not. I am a lawyer by trade. This is just my hobby. And as to whether or not I make any money from these episodes, I most certainly am not at this point. As far as me eventually writing a book, look, everybody, I'm going to level with you. That is absolutely the dream. I would love to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. So if any of you are book agents looking for somebody to write a book about American history, please reach out. I've got ideas and I would love to help. As to the final part of the question about whether or not I ever plan to sell merch, the answer is this is actually something that's been on my back burner for quite a while now. Yes, I do have plans to eventually make merch available. It is one of those things that I am perpetually going to get to in a couple of weeks and get to work on. It's been that way for, I'd say, the last two years. I will tell you all that there does exist to the political history of the United States coffee mugs. They are both quite nice, and I fully intend to someday sell those to all of you guys who might want to buy one to help support the show. I just don't really know when someday is. So we can actually circle back here to that first question. How do I find time to do all of these things? Well, I find time to do the important things, the research, the writing, the editing, but I am also acutely aware that I am lacking in other areas like social media, promotion, and yes, in merch sales and things like that. So one of these days I'll get around to it and you too can own a political history of the United States coffee mug. For our second to final question of the day, what was the most important event, in your opinion? of the first 50 years after the founding. So we have yet another power ranking question here. First, before we can just jump in, I think we need to define what the founding meant. Are we talking about the time since Jamestown in 1607? 50 years from that would land us in 1657. Massachusetts gets us out to the 1670s. And if we are counting by Georgia, that gets us out to 1782. So I'll tell you right now, if we're including Georgia in the founding, the answer is the revolution and the Treaty of Paris. That seems like a pretty big thing. However, that just seems outside the spirit of the question. So I'm going to throw up a hard limit and a completely arbitrary limit here at 1689. That way we have a few options to pick from. By this point, a majority of our colonies have been founded. 
and we've gone through multiple wars, a smattering of rebellions, and more than one royal governor had been sent packing. Here, however, there are two things that really stick out to me right at the very beginning. The circumstances surrounding the founding of Virginia and the New England colonies would prove to have profound effects on the future of politics. Virginia was a colony largely made up of second sons. The colony was very rich in land, it had good soil, and of course there was tobacco. The huge amount of land, the good soil, and tobacco lends itself to the development of a plantation-style system. This system created a massive need for labor, which would be answered through the practice and the use of slavery. The southern colonies would quickly rise to economic dominance early in the history of the United States. Compared to the other colonies, Virginia was just an absolute behemoth. Now, in New England, they controlled their own company, whereas the Virginia Company was run out of London, the Massachusetts Bay Company was run out of Massachusetts itself. They controlled the company themselves. This led to minimal oversight from London, at least up until the era of the Dominion of New England. The land was not great. It was not good farming land. It was particularly rocky land. And it led to a lot of artisans setting up shop there. The people coming over were largely what you would consider to be middle class. There really wasn't a middle class yet, but that's basically what they were. They were people who could pay their own way over, but not necessarily live in the comfort and style of those palatial mansions down in, say, Virginia on the plantations. Because you have much more of an artisan culture, and farming was largely for subsistence rather than huge amounts of profit, you really had less of a need for indentured servants and then eventually slaves. And of course, I've said many times, this is not to say that there weren't indentured servants or slaves, but there was less demand for them up in the New England colonies as compared to the southern colonies. This is a thing that happened at the very beginning that is going to have long-term effects on the colonies and the future United States. It is ultimately going to help to explain that dual economic system that we are going to see emerge in the future. It is also going to help lay a very early foundation for what is going to be the darkest time in the country's history during the 1860s and the Civil War. So I am going to go with the answer here that I think the biggest thing to happen within 50 years of the founding was the very nature of how the colonies were founded what groups were settling where, and why they were settling there, and how they set up their economic systems. Because that is going to lead to major consequences that are going to remain throughout much of the history of the United States. For our final question today, the question is, what has been your favorite episode? Least favorite. What things would I change? 
So let's start with talking about my favorite episodes. Now, as far as an individual episode, my answer is going to be the 1741 New York Slave episode. And the reason for that is because it was an event completely unknown to me before I started working on this show. I have spent a good portion of my life reading American history. It's something that I've always been very interested in. I've got my bachelor's degree in history, and a lot of the classes that I took to get there were American history. So I've got a pretty good timeline of the major events that have happened. That's, of course, not a foolproof timeline, but things like Bacon's Rebellion, the Dominion of New England, King Philip's War, all these things that we've talked about, I at least knew that they took place. Now, through the course of the podcast, I've learned tremendous amounts more detail than I knew before. But again, at least I knew they took place. The 1741 slave conspiracy, it was something that I did not know was a thing quite literally until an episode or so before I recorded it when I had come across it in another book and suddenly been like, what's this? Why don't I know what this is? And then I went out, bought the fantastic book by Jill Lepore on it, and quickly brought myself up on what had happened there. So that episode was immensely satisfying to me because it was something that I just was completely unaware of. Now, that is my favorite individual episode, but I am actually going to let you guys in on how I write the show and explain from there more so what my favorite parts of the show are. When I'm writing, I don't really write episodes very often that are just one-and-done standalones, but rather I write in a series of episodes. And you can actually see what my series are by going to the website and looking at my source list. Because in there, I am listing it by series, because the common thing between these series is I'm always using the same sources and going back between them. So when asked my favorite, I'm actually going to focus on a batch of episodes here just because it's how I view the show. Each episode is essentially a chapter in a greater overall series. So my first answer is actually going to probably be a bit of a cop out because it is episodes that you guys have not heard yet. And specifically, I am talking about my upcoming series on the Imperial Crisis. Now, I'm going to let you guys in on what is probably not a very well-kept secret. I am writing considerably ahead of where I'm recording. And I do that just for the pure and simple fact that when life gets in the way of the podcast, you don't all notice it because I am some 30-plus episodes ahead of you. So if life gets in my way and I don't have time to write an episode for a week, well, hey, that's no big deal because I've got this massive backlog that I'm just plucking from there. So at any given time, I'm about 30 to 35 episodes ahead of the narrative. I will tell you all as I am writing the answer to this question, 
I am writing an episode about the invasion of Canada in 1775. So that should give you an idea of where I am in terms of scripting the podcast. And writing this way gives me other advantages as well, because it gives me the advantage that I can more easily draw strings together and, I hope, tie together a better overall storyline. So my Imperial Crisis episodes, I absolutely am thrilled with what I put together there, and I am very, very excited for you all to hear them. They are, at least in my opinion, the very best work that I have ever done on this podcast. So you've got that to look forward to. We're going to be getting there in just three episodes time from today. But that's not published yet. So again, that's a bit of a cheat. So I am actually going to go with my episodes on the Dominion of New England. I've always been very interested in the Dominion going all the way back to when I was in college, so long before I started this podcast. I believe this is the second time I'm going to bring up just today that I am admittedly a bit of an Edmund Andros fanboy. I've always been fascinated by his ability to survive, so I very much enjoyed going through his life and times with you all. And overall, I felt like those episodes really came together in the way that I had envisioned it in my head. I was very happy with the final product. I might have changed the organization of it just a little bit and rolled the first few episodes of season three into it, but that's all relatively minor stuff. So... Yeah, the Dominion of New England episodes have been my favorite thing that I have published thus far, but they are in short order going to be usurped by my work on the Imperial Crisis, so stay tuned for that. Next up in this question is, what has been my least favorite episode and what would I do differently? Now, I'm going to combine those into a single part because I'm going to tell you all right now, there is nothing that I would really say that I've disliked, at least content-wise, that I've published. There are a handful of scripts that I did not like and that I have chosen not to publish because I don't think they were my best work. So everything that you all have heard that I've published is something that I am proud of, something that I don't mind having my name attached to. Now, I will say that there are some things that I would like to go back and change if I could. There are some iffy recordings early on where I am clearly not 100% sure what I'm doing. I am perfectly aware that especially the first dozen or so episodes of the podcast can be a little bit rough to listen to. I am also very aware that I have miserably botched pronunciations as we've gone. I do realize that my episode on the 1741 slave conspiracy, I should have gone with hanged instead of hung. And yeah, I got a lot of corrections from you guys on that, and you can feel free to stop now on that, by the way. I wish my early episodes had a better overall flow to them as I figured out what my podcast voice, so to speak, was going to sound like. However, I'm going to exclude all of these things and focus completely on the content because that's really the thing that matters to me. 
So what do I wish I would have changed? I wish I could have included more from that period of 1640 to 1660. There is just a complete lack of sources there, and it made it difficult to get anything good. And as a result, I just really blew past a 20-year span, which the further and further away, the more I regret having done that. I would like to have done a better job of interweaving the story of slavery into the narrative. I do like the breakout episodes that we did. That had always been my plan on them is to have these big episodes, especially on the early history of slavery. But ideally, looking back, I think I would have liked to have worked all of that into the podcast more organically rather than having these big, large dumps of information on it. I would have also liked to have gotten more into women and just family life in general. This, I think, would be very interesting to have more detail on, and we've really not talked a lot about the day-to-day lives of your everyday colonists. But I don't really ever go into that much detail of what was it like just to be a colonist during these events. And there's a couple reasons for that. A big one is that most sources are focusing on those big events. They're not focused on the day-to-day lives. And as a result of that, it's 16 and 1700, men are the ones who are driving events during this time. So what I have found is that oftentimes the podcast does feel like it's overlooking women, which is not at all what I wanted to do necessarily. It's just they're not showing up in most of the sources that I'm using. But don't be fooled for an instant. They play a huge, huge role in all of this, and they are very much contributing to the discourse of what's happening. And their contributions are immeasurable in what is going to happen, especially as we move in towards the American Revolution. And finally, I'm always going to say that right now we're 108 episodes in. I am always trying to improve in everything I do, from how the podcast sounds to just the general presentation to the research and the information that I present to you. And my real hope is that when we reach episode 200, I can look back and I can say that, wow, back at episode 100, I wish I would have done this differently or that differently. So I am always striving to improve these things that I want to have be different because there's no other better way to do this. So with that, I want to thank you all for listening today. Thank you all so much for the questions that you sent me. This has been a lot of fun to do. I've enjoyed going through all of your questions and getting a chance to interact in this way, which is not something that I've typically done on the show thus far. With that, next time, when we return, we are going to kick off season four is going to be looking at the imperial crisis moving in to the American Revolution. So I look forward to seeing you all back here in two weeks' time. 
I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we see wars once again explode along the frontiers. <laughs> <laughs>